That is me dressed up like an anime character standing in a TARDIS. Ah, gotcha. Oh, we've all got one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I have several. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 126 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Janie Clayton. Yay. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Janie Clayton. I have been an iOS developer for the last two years. I have a couple of books out. I have the iOS 8 SDK crafting apps in Swift through the Pragmatic Programmers that I wrote with Chris Adamson. And just out today, I am a contributor to the Swift Apprentice by Ray Wenderlich. I run Ray's tutorial team. I spent a year working for Brad Larson, the creator of GPU Image, and I currently work as a contractor at Black Pixel. Wow. So can you do that with Ray Wenderlich and Pragmatic Programmers? I mean, don't you get the Ray Wenderlich guy and the Pragmatic Programmer guy? And... <laughs> well, I had talked to the editor at the Pragmatic Programmers. I saw that. Uh, so I didn't actively contribute to the book this year. I was a little bit swamped and I didn't mean to contribute to the Swift book. But like I, I had to sign a contract saying that they could use the work that I did last year. And I had to contact them if I wanted to work on somebody else's book. And I contacted the editor and I said, hi, is this a conflict of interest? Is it OK if I work on this book? And I never heard back. So I just went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> no news is good news, right? Yeah, pretty much. I I, I, let, I made them aware of it, and I only did one chapter. I literally did like 12 pages, but I got my name first on the book because it came first alphabetically, so huzzah. <laughs> huh. I don't, ha- I don't have that problem. I'm always last. <laughs> yeah, Super. you'd come in behind me, wouldn't you? Yep, I could, I could write everything. I'm still last. How it goes. And I'm just about right in the middle. Well, I'm not co-authoring a book with you guys, then. Well, I've never co-authored a book, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and it's I'm basically not why I don't write books anymore. Yeah, there you go. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking before the show, and we thought we would talk about robots, which isn't something I guess you really think about when you think about iOS. Can you kind of give us a brief overview of how you think about robotics when you're talking about a device like an iPhone or an iPad? Actually, our robotics, we didn't utilize iOS technology. We wrote them for the Mac, so all of our oh, stuff okay. was like in Objective-C, Cocoa, Swift, etc. So um, I know that we were talking at some point about trying to eventually possibly replace our control software on the Mac with an iPad, but that wasn't something that was at the top of our priority list. Do you want me to kind of give you an overview about how I got involved with that job and why we decided to rewrite all of our control software? Yes. 
Okay. Like I said, I've been programming for about two years. I got my first programming job back in December of 2013, and I was working for a startup in Madison that I'm not going to name because I'd like to be able to say not necessarily nice things about them. I don't want anybody to know who they actually are. But um, I was the oldest person ever like a decade, and all the people who were running the company were like 20 years old, and none of them knew how to code, and it just wasn't really a good fit. And I was there for about two months, and I knew I was about to get fired, and I started kind of trying to think about what I wanted to be doing with my career. And I knew that I wanted to work with somebody like Brad Larson. Brad's um, iTunes U course that he has up on for iOS programming was taught at the school that I went to for programming. And while I was going to school there, I kept hearing all these stories about him, about how he did all of these impossible things and how like Apple told him that something he wanted to do couldn't be done. And he figured out a way of doing it anyway. And they like offered him a job. And he was just like, no, I have this job where I like build and program robots. I'm totally going to, yeah, this is my own company. I'm, I'm going to stay and run my own company. And I just really thought he was this like cool, awesome person that I wanted to be like. So I kind of reached out to him and told him that I was interested in learning GPU image stuff because I wanted to, at that point, do GPU image contract work. And we wound up working on a contract together and uh, we got to be friends. And a little over a year ago, he brought me on to work at his company. And originally when he brought me on to work at the company, the idea was that I would go in and I would do bug fixes and other things to keep our software maintainable because we were having a lot of issues with crashes. We had a bug that caused, I think, $10,000 worth of damage because there was a nil messaging error. And the entire first, like, two months that I was there, um, while I was working on things, Brad kept going, you know what, this is so much easier to do if we just did this in Swift. This would be safer if it was in Swift, it would be easier, the code would be better if it was in Swift, and then I finally just said to him, dude, you, you clearly want to do this in Swift, so why don't we just rewrite the software in Swift? So we spent about 10 months rewriting our legacy Objective-C software in Swift, and that was what I got to do with him for the last uh, year or so. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> so what kind of robots were you controlling over there? We had a robot. It has uh, three axes, so an X, a Y, and a Z. And the purpose of the robotics is doing microscopic precision fluid printing. And what that primarily was used for it was originally developed for doing biological research um, for creating like protein microarrays. But then in the last five years or so, our primary clientele has been people doing printed electronics and working with things like carbon nanotubes. Wow. So well, is this like 3D printing on steroids? No, it's it's not it's not 3D printing. So the way that the um, fluid is controlled is using ultrasonic frequencies. This was a this was something that Brad discovered while he was getting his PhD in material science at the University of Wisconsin was that um, using high frequency audio waves, you could control the amount of fluid that was being dispensed by the printer. So I, of course, am interested in audio. And so when he was telling me that they were using sound to control the, the printing on the robots, that got me incredibly excited. But no, it's it's not 3D printing per se. It's like, like it's doing printed electronics. So you, it's almost it's a little bit like um, almost like an inkjet printer, except we're not spraying massive quantities of fluid. We're doing very precise, small amounts of fluid that can be, like I said, done to print circuits. So you could do printed electronics on flexible surfaces. Oh, okay. And you make the computer sing to it to control it. Yes. One reason that Brad went with the Mac system was because it had a really good, robust ability to do good user interface stuff. A lot of our clients are from overseas in China and in other countries where you don't necessarily want to have something that's an incredibly complicated text-based user interface. We have a lot of buttons and a lot of icons and a lot of things that aren't associated purely with English in order to try to make this as intuitive as possible. 
Am I correct? Because normally if you were creating this kind of system and you wanted, you know, industrial users or researchers or whatever to use it, you'd probably think, well, Windows has huge, huge market share. I can't make this Mac only. But I get the feeling that when Sonoplot sells one of these, they sell a Mac with it and it's just part of the system. So. <laughs> Yep, that's that correct. True? Yep, we go and we install the software on the iMac before we send them out, and we have to set up some parameters for each of the robotic systems. So, like, it happened a lot more recently, but we've had times when um, the ControlSoft computer has been stolen from the labs, and we've had to go and buy another Mac and send it out there, and we've had to actually do that instead of having them go out and buy it themselves because we have a bunch of settings that we need to put onto the software. But, yeah, that was a consideration that Brad made when he decided to do everything in Coco. Coco was really, it allowed him to do a lot of development very quickly and there was a real advantage for having a primary platform of just Mac instead of trying to make it cross-platform and yeah, we just include a Mac with each of the systems. I think the systems are high-end systems like $52,000 and buying a low-end Mac is like thousand bucks. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of the cost of the system, it isn't, isn't that much. <laughs> so, so can you describe the system architecture? So how is the Sonoplot connected to the, the iMac we have an electronics box, so we, one of the things that we needed to make sure we could do with Swift when we transferred everything over to Swift was to make sure that we could connect to the serial port and be able to connect to the electronics. So our control software will have um, like a navigation thing where we want to tell like the x-axis to move over 100 microns. So there'll be a button where you can set the number of microns you want it to move over, and then you click it. And then that signal is translated over into code that gets sent to the electronics board, which then sends it out to the motor. And then the motors go and do stuff. And so we've got a nice little chain between the control software on the Mac, the microcontroller in the electronics box, then the programming on the motors. I actually wanted to ask you about that. Well, so the background is I have a Objective-C serial port library that's probably <laughs> the most popular one. I mean, there are like two out there, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the two most popular in the world. Right. Uh, and, you know, when Swift first came out, I thought it would be kind of fun to try to rewrite that in Swift, but it was really just actually impossible, primarily because Swift 1 didn't really support passing function pointers into, or, you know, passing Swift functions into APIs that expect a function pointer, a C function pointer. And I remember you, you and Brad did a blog post called Swift Serial Port which was a really good blog post, and it had nothing to do with serial ports. It was just called that. <laughs> um, but I'm curious to know how you s sort of solved that problem. Did you end up writing the, the serial port part of that code in, in something else? With Swift 2.0, it's kind of, I think you can do it now, but before that, it was hard. So just a caveat, Brad wrote a lot of the serial port software. He was doing that while I was working on some parts with Objective-C just to make sure this was something that we could do. And I'm assuming either we did it in Objective-C or else um, I'm pretty sure. I know that we needed to use Objective-C to connect to the camera. We have an IIDC compliant camera, and that one re did require us to have C function pointers. But I don't think that the serial port required us to have... C function pointers. I think we were able to do everything that we needed to do. So we, I know we were able to take everything and just convert everything to UTF-8 strings and at the follow that. I know that I needed to go through and do stuff on the ASCII chart. So I know we were able to like like break everything down into just like the numbers and everything associated with the ASCII chart and be able to send commands that way. And we didn't need to use C mutable function pointers. Interesting. I guess it's actually the part of the API that requires function pointers is the IO kit discovery stuff and you maybe didn't really need to use that because that's sort of more like if you don't know what devices are hooked up and you need to find them and be notified when new ones are connected. And That wasn't an issue that we ran into. Cool. 
Well, speaking about this, you mentioned that the system already existed. When did Brad's or Sonoplot software start? How old was the code base you were working on to start with? The company began in 2003, and for the first couple of years, Brad had written the software in, I think, C++. And the decision was made in 2007 to completely rewrite the software to Objective-C, and I think that took about six months. So at the time that I was working on the code base, it was about seven, eight years old. Kind of an old code base in, oh, yeah. you know, Objective-C land. It was an older code base. One of the first things that I needed to deal with while we were there was we had a plug-in for Interface Builder because there were parts in the UI that, that had been created before Interface Builder like existed. And so I had to figure out some way of being able to break our dependency on this plug-in for Interface Builder. And I was just kind of like, dude, why would you use a, a plug-in for this? He's like, well, because that's all there was back when we had Xcode 3, like you know, however oh, many wow. years ago. <laughs> yeah, he's not wrong about that. There was actually a popular third-party thing called BW Toolkit that was an Xcode or an interface builder plugin. And I used that and it kind of sucked when Xcode 4 came out and it did not work anymore. <laughs> well, I would, I would think that the, 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 the better tools in the Xcode would be a good thing instead of having to kind of use workarounds in order to get them to work. <laughs> uh, well, you're right. It was kind of cool because you could see your custom UI in, in interface builder back then. And then they took that out and then they added it back finally in Xcode 6 at, in a much better designed way you know i mean this new stuff they've got is way better than the old stuff but for a while they just took it out and there was nothing to replace it and you were kind of stuck figuring out how to deal with that and see i don't remember back that i i, th I remember thinking it was really cool when they came up with like the ib designable stuff but i didn't realize that they'd actually had that functionality in there before because i think my first xcode that i started working with was xcode 4 yeah they had it before in xcode 2 and 3 and probably even i didn't it was not even called xcode before that but i didn't I started when it was 2, 2.0, but yeah, but it was a pain. It was hard. It was way harder to use than the IB designable stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely an improvement. I did want to mention that the IB designable stuff, at least with Xcode 6, it only worked for iOS stuff. It didn't work with Mac stuff. So we weren't able to use the IB designable stuff in our code base, which was total crap. <laughs> I know it works now because I'm using it in a, a couple of things that I'm working on now, but in Xcode 7, in, in Mac apps. Yay. That's a good thing. I feel like Mac is not getting as much attention as iOS from Apple lately. Oh, absolutely oh. not. When I would go and I would look at all of the NS whatever documentation that they had available, I think that all had last been updated in like 2010. I saw a couple of things where it was like, you're either doing this in Cocoa or in Carbon. It was just like, oh, God, really? You haven't, you haven't updated it since then? Why? <laughs> Yeah, at least they got rid of all the Java Cocoa documentation that was there <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I oh, want to veer a little bit more into the robotics for a minute. You mentioned that you you tell it to move like 100 microns, which is, if you don't know, um, 100 microns is really tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, I mean, how do you design your robots to be that precise? Well, interestingly, we went through and we were redoing our prototype system. So our large system, um, the Microplotter 2, has a resolution of 2.5 microns. And I believe that a lot of that had to do with what motors and axes we decided to purchase. So um, I know that our axes that we have on the primary one are from NSK and that we use um, animatic smart motors and that we needed to make sure that our motors could go through and actually like get the resolution that we wanted to accurately. So I was talking about we have this prototype system that was replacing our desktop system that I believe had a resolution of 20 microns. And we wanted to have it a little 
bit more precise than that. And so we tried a couple of different types of motors. Like we tried some stepper motors, but we couldn't ever get the stepper motors to accurately be able to keep doing like 10 microns or lower. So we had to get some motors that were hybrid stepper and we weren't able to use just pure stepper motors. We had to get slightly more expensive motors that had a little bit more precision associated with them in order to be able to hit our specs of like 10 microns. And then are there libraries that translate the rotational, what am I thinking? So how far it has to rotate in order to get you... All of our motors that we have for each of the systems are programmable. So um, it isn't that there's an external library that exists somewhere else. It's that each manufacturer of these programmable motors goes through and has their own software and has their own documentation. So one of the things that Brad got to do that I was really jealous of him being able to do that he told me I really shouldn't be jealous about about was that he had to go through and work with the motors and be able to figure out how to program them and figure out their command sets and be able to figure out their tuning parameters in order to make sure that they were able to go through and behave the way that we wanted them to. And I thought that all of that was incredibly interesting and I really wanted to work with that. But unfortunately, that was not something I got to work on. And then the other question I guess I have with this is that a lot of robots or robotics that you wind up working with, they have some kind of controller on the other end. So you just hook the whole thing up to a serial port and you send it the command like move to this XYZ coordinate. And then the controller on the other end actually figures out how to move the motors. Is that what you're doing or are you giving each motor or each controller on the motor its own instructions? We're sending each of the motors their own instructions, I believe. I know that we don't have a lot of programming done with a microcontroller. I know most other of our competitors have incredibly robust microcontrollers, and a lot of the logic is being done electronically and through hardware, and we decided to do a lot of our processing through software. So a lot of the programming that we have about where we're telling the motors to go is being done within the control software on the Mac. And then I guess my last question is, how many inputs can you give the system? So, I mean, you have X, Y, and Z, or up, down, right, left, or whatever, and then you've got uh, other things like, you know, you doing fluid stuff with uh, sound frequency and stuff like that. Uh, how many different things do you have to keep track of in your program at the same time to get it to do what it's supposed to do? So we have the three axes. We have the X, the Y, and the Z. We have the dispenser, and then we also have an external camera. We use the camera because we want our customers to be able to go through and get screenshots and videos of all of the work that they're doing. We have people who will go and make videos of their projects that they're working on, and they'll include them with their research materials when they'll go and they'll present um, their topics at various conferences. But we also needed to have the camera available so that the customers could go through and actually be able to line up and move the dispenser to where they want it to be on the deck because that's completely controlled by them. So we have to keep track of all of the axes, the dispenser, and the camera. And then in the software on the Mac, do they put a design in and then the program figures out how to tell your dispenser to move up and down and around to get to the right place to do things? Yes, we had an external CAD program called SonoDraw that we include with all of our systems where people can go in and they can draw circuits and they can draw various different things. And then one of the things that I was responsible for working on in the control software was, so the SonoDraw goes and creates an XML document and I had to set up the XML parsing within our control software in order to be able to send the robot the commands about how the axes were supposed to be moving. So I'm going to make it sound like it's as simple as just telling it, move up, down, right, and left, you know, do the dispenser thing, you know, with the sound and everything else. And that's all there is to it. Why is robotics maybe a little more complicated than that? It's a little bit 
complicated because you, like what you're saying is very true. That you're telling it move left, right, move whatever, but you also have to kind of keep track of all of the state and everything moving all together. Like I know one of the big things that Brad was interested in with Swift and one of the reasons we decided to go with Swift as opposed to staying with Objective-C was because of the more robust error handling. When they introduced the error handling stuff in Swift 2.0, there are more complicated parts of our control software where we have 20 or so different commands that all have to be able to execute without throwing an error in order for things to actually like go through and complete successfully because again we had an issue before with nil messaging errors where the dispenser would be rammed into the deck because it would try to go to zero and zero is like all the way down so um it is as simple as saying you need to make sure that this does something this does something this does something but then you also have to make sure that all of them are doing that safely in order to make sure that you're not causing any damage to the robotics. It's very complex to try to make sure that everything goes the way that it's supposed to in order to avoid creating anything that would cause damage. And of course, there is also the difficulty of actually building the robots, right? Those seem like they're pretty sophisticated to me. They were actually surprisingly not that difficult to assemble. Um, we didn't, we tried to get as many parts off the shelf as we could from other places. And so we had a couple of machine shops that would go and create the base plates for the robotics. And, um, I've put one together in about a day. It was really nice to be able to put a robot together because there were just days where I just did not want to sit in front of my computer and code and being able to just go and put on headphones and get out the, you know, the screwdrivers and the axes and be able to construct the robot was an incredibly therapeutic thing that I kind of miss right now. <laughs> I know how you feel, having been a hardware engineer that liked to build stuff, and now I sit in front of a computer all day. I I feel really bad. I set up like an electronics shop in my basement with a soldering iron. I've got all of my different stuff, and I kept thinking that, you know, when I had my free time, I was going to go downstairs, and I was going to go, and I was going to build electronics, and I haven't had free time yet. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, with the list of things you told us you do Mm. when you introduced yourself, I don't know how you have any free time at all. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I don't. I recently started working from home and everybody's like, oh, you've got two more hours a day that you can do stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm not actually getting two hours a day. I don't know what happened to it. It just got swallowed up by all of the other things I'm doing. <laughs> you started to mention this, but a big part of what you were doing was rewriting the Objective-C apps that were already there in Swift. And I kind of want to ask you how that went. I'm curious to know. Well, first, I'm curious to know what what was the overall thinking behind deciding to do that? Because it's a pretty big job to rewrite your apps. And other than I know Brad was excited about Swift, but in terms of like real legitimate, this is a good idea kind of reasons, what was the thinking there? Again, um, part of the thinking was that Brad was very interested in being able to have better error handling. Um, we had, like I said, the code base was about seven, eight years old. And as it grew in complexity, just there were different things in there that we couldn't go through and actually change. Like Brad created GPU image and we weren't able to incorporate GPU image into our camera software in the software because... It was just at a point where if you even like looked at it, then things would break. We had uh, an error that would that would happen that we didn't have any idea what was actually causing it. So we get this passive aggressive thing in the in the console saying like, you know, this is a generic error message, but your user deserves better. And we couldn't go through and customize the error message because we had absolutely no idea where the error was being thrown. We had a lot of spaghetti code. Things were tightly coupled. There were a bunch of parts that were fragile, and it, we got to the point where we couldn't add improvements to the software because they just it was too difficult to go through and decouple all of the code. So one of the thoughts behind it was being able to go in and actually re-architect the software 
in a way that made it easier to test and to be able to modify it and add more functionality later. But no, a big reason that we decided to go through and update all of the stuff was the error handling because we, again, when you have errors in software, you know, it's a pain. People kind of get annoyed when it crashes, but when you have hardware, it causes physical damage that costs a lot of money. And I, I did want to mention, I do um, do a conference talk about this software project that we did, and I'm going to be presenting it at CocoConf San Jose in the first week of November. If anybody's interested in going and hearing me do a whole big spiel about it. Yeah, I wish I was going, but not, <laughs> not going to be able to swing it this year, but maybe I can make it to one of them next year. Well, I don't want you to spoil your conference talk, but that said, I'm curious to know how you went about the rewrite. Did you just create a new Xcode project and start typing or was this sort of a piece by piece, you know, refactoring parts at a time? We started a new Xcode project. Brad had done a side project of working with the error handling and the serial port stuff just to make sure that Swift was a viable thing. We didn't just randomly one day say, all right, we're just going to redo everything in Swift. He actually went through and, and did some benchmarking and did verify that some of the stuff that we were a little worried about would actually be able to work in Swift. Because I don't know if you remember this or not, but when Swift first came out, you know, like all of the, the, the gray beards or whatever were saying like, oh, this is a bad idea. This is horrible. It's not ready for production. There's, you know, we, we, you, you can't use Swift in a, a normal app. We're just going to stick with Objective-C. So back in those early days, we weren't entirely certain whether Swift had gotten to the point where it would do everything that we wanted it to do or not. So again, Brad put together the serial port and some of the other stuff, and that served as the basis for our project. Um, he went through and he kind of figured out how we could add functionality to the project, what the more complicated things were that could be added later. And so I believe first things we put in there, we put in the serial port and we put in the electronics stuff. Um, I know that dealing with robotics was the, one of the last things that we put into the code because it was the most complicated part of the code. But yeah, we just um, we kind of broke it down into pieces and we slowly built it out bit by bit. Like I said, I, I worked on the XML wrapping. I actually had to go, spend two months going through and learning LibXML2 and wrapping that in Swift. So that was an interesting experience. And then I did stuff with the camera and we just we had discrete pieces of the functionality that we would port over and we'd write unit tests around to make sure that everything worked. Cool. So I, I've heard recently, I can't remember who, what company it was, but some company was saying that they rewrote their app in from Objective-C into Swift and the, like the total number of lines of code in Swift was way less than in Objective-C. And I'm curious if you saw that too. Did the code base get simpler in Swift? Oh, the code base shrunk by dramatically. Back when I was first doing my conference talk, I think that our code base was only 25% the size of the equivalent Objective-C stuff. But recently, when we just shipped the software, I believe a week or two ago, and the final software, it wasn't quite as small, but it was still, I think it was like less than 40% of the size of the Objective-C one in terms of lines of code. And we also didn't have unit tests in the Objective-C, and we do have unit tests in the Swift but there was a dramatic shrinking of the code base. So which parts of the Objective-C are making it verbose? So a lot of our work that we did, we actually went and rewrote things in Swift. So we had data serialization where we were going and saving things to and from the user defaults. And instead of using the NS coding syntax, we went through and rewrote our own syntax in Swift. So anything that was a Cocoa framework is not something that you can really cut down on a lot in Swift. Like I just, I was recently working with some core graphics stuff and the core graphics API is incredibly verbose. There's a limited to the amount of code that you can cut when you're going and you're interacting with an Objective-C framework. If you're going through and writing everything just in Swift, you can get a lot of wins off of that because you're actually writing all of your conditional logic in Swift. But if you're going and referencing something that's written in something else, you're not going to see the dramatic gains 
Do you have any sense of, after rewriting this app in Swift, do you have kind of any sense from the field about whether it cut down on the number of errors and bugs that users see in the app? Oh, absolutely. We were able to, I believe that we were able to cut out 40% of the bugs that we had just by converting to Swift because there were things that just wouldn't even have been, the compiler wouldn't even allowed us to do. Like a lot of our issues were with nil messaging errors and that can't happen with Swift. So we've seen a huge dramatic increase in the safety of the software and being able to prevent bugs from even occurring. So I'm curious on kind of what the, the architecture of the actual application looks like. So at one level, you get buttons and view controllers, and you're talking to, you know, on the other end to robots. What are the patterns you're using for the code? We didn't actually use a lot of design patterns. We were able to utilize like higher order functions in order to create helper functions that were being used throughout the application. We didn't use a lot of classes. We have a lot of structs and we implemented a lot of protocols. So just a lot of the things that they were talking about at this most recent WWDC about the protocol oriented programming are things that we had already started implementing in our code. One of the reasons that Brad was kind of interested in Swift was because he'd been interested in Haskell and was interested in all of the different functions programming paradigms and aspects that existed in Haskell. And so he went and learned to Haskell and was able to take a lot of the programming patterns from Haskell and apply them to Swift. Okay. So if you take a typical view controller, like moving the robot, setting the X and Y, letting the user do that, do you have access to all all the code? Is there any kind of abstractions that you're using within the view controller? Okay, so you're talking about things that are specifically Coco, like the view controller. We don't have a lot of view controller stuff in our code. I think maybe 15, 20% of the code had to do with like user interface stuff. Most of our code had to do with actual logic associated with the robots and being able to parse documents and being, and controlling the dispenser. So when you're talking about all of the stuff with the view controller, yeah, that was stuff that we had to use Coco design patterns around. But most of the work that I did on the application was not on view controllers. It was on actual classes that controlled the electronics or controlled the robots or controlled the errors or controlled the dispenser or controlled the camera. So we had classes associated with each piece of hardware that we were using and that was where we were able to see a lot of gains and we were able to apply a lot of this stuff because we weren't actually using view controllers or using things that were Cocoa frameworks. Okay, I'm curious about how you connect the two worlds. I worked on a lot of embedded stuff and doing like low-low libraries, but you're also having a user do things that make these complex things happen. So I'm just curious on what the connecting points are. So you wouldn't have a lot of view code. You're doing simple things, but they're setting off complex processes and just kind of interested in where the boundaries are for and how you're separating those things out. Yeah, we had very little code that was in like the view controllers. A lot of it was like, you know, if you we were telling the robot to move somewhere, we would send a command from the button out to our instance of our robot class and we would go and trigger a series of complicated maneuvers that would be done within the robot class. So like all of our logic, instead of being in a view controller, it was in like a robot.swift class. You mentioned something, I think you said the app was called Sono Draw. So that's the app that people can use to draw their whatever it is that they're making, the, yep, the, the that, printing, right? Yep, that's our CAD program. But that's separate from the robot control app, right? So that's they correct. Just, yeah, okay. So you've probably got a lot more UI code in Sono Draw than you do in your actual, whatever you call it, your... Right. Sano Guide is the control software. So in Sano Guide, you can go in and you can upload a Sano Draw file. And so the file is just an XML document that goes and gets parsed by the parser within the Sano Guide application. So there's the answer to James' question. 
the communication between them is the XML file that you get out of the one app and put into the other. That's pretty cool. So is there a real-time component to the robotics that you're writing for this? Um, what do you mean by real-time? You know, a real-time system, like if it doesn't happen this time, you know, it's yes. not correct. Yes, we did have listeners to make sure that if, like, you know, we sent out a message and we didn't get back in a certain amount of time, we would have a timeout error. And we were actually able to go in and customize our errors to the point where if you had a, an error, we knew exactly what the error was. So, like, if your system timed out, we could send back a message to the user saying that the system timed out. Or if the um, electronics was disconnected or unplugged, we could send back an error about that. Or if the robot hit an obstruction, instead of it just being like, this failed and we don't really know why we were able to go through and actually do a lot of conditional logic and set up complex error handling in order to be able to give very specific details back to the user about what their problem was so they could go in and they could fix it. Because there's not really a point of going and continuing to try to send messages to the camera if the camera isn't plugged in. True. That sounds like you know, high-level error. Are there any concepts like if this is 20 milliseconds late, then that's an error? Yeah, we have like, like timeout errors. Okay. Do you get to the point where it's like a hard real time where it's guaranteed to happen in a certain thing? Is that even possible with Swift or, or even dealing with that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, you just use timers. Like you'd set it up where you'd have a callback block where you send off an asynchronous message. And if you don't get it back within a certain amount of time, then you would throw an error. Okay, so you, you listen for something to complete, then it's throwing an error. Yeah. All right. Of course, now that I'm saying all of this, Brad will listen to this and go, no, no, you're explaining it wrong. And I'll be like, dude, <laughs> I don't have the code in front of me. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, when you get into like like a hard real-time, that's a very specific thing. And I've never done any like hard real-time things. The most I've done is like audio where it sounds bad, not where something, <laughs> not where something like breaks. But in the, when you get into robotics, when things are moving, if you're off by, you know, even a tiny amount, like you can totally break stuff. And you get into a point where your operating system has to be ready to handle that. And I'm just wondering how well Swift works for that. But you're doing like, you work just with um, kind of OS X, OS X callbacks for, for timing. That makes sense. There was only one part of our software that we had to go back to Objective-C for, and that was, again, the, the IIDC camera class. We had a library that we used to go and interact with the IIDC camera. So that's a, a FireWire like protocol-compliant camera. And that particular library had C function call, C function pointers that we could not use in Swift. So I had to go through and spend like two months going and porting that over to Objective C in order for us to be able to implement GPU image. But aside from that one thing, everything else that we were doing um, was able to be translated over properly in Swift. I wanted to just tack onto that. I think what you're talking about is actually is open source, right? The GPU image. IIDC yes. camera example. Yes, that is my project that I did while I was working for Brad. That is my code. And it actually feeds right into my next question, which you kind of sort of just answered. But you mentioned earlier that one of the things that made you guys want to redo all this was that Brad created GPU image and yet couldn't use it in the existing project and you guys wanted to use it. And I, I sort of wanted to know a little bit about how you use GPU image and also, you know, what you did with that. Because I know graphics programming is another one of your interests, one of your things that you know about. So, like I said, back when Brad created this, like, in 2007, that was before we had AV Foundation. And so all of our video code was written in, like, 
it was we used the core video library and it was very complicated and there was a lot of stuff in there that just kind of worked like magic and if you change something it would break and you wouldn't really know why so when AV Foundation and GPU Image and all these other things came out in the last couple of years it was incredibly difficult to go through and actually try to add it into the current code base so so when I was responsible to go in and translate over the IIDC camera stuff one of the tasks that I had was going through and trying to kind of get rid of all of the core video stuff that we had in the original code and bring over just what we needed to do. So the reason that we have GPU image is because we do filter our images. We do go through and we add like a denoiser and we have a couple of other filters that we apply to our video and eventually um, we'd like to get to a point where, so Brad is very interested in machine vision stuff, it would be really cool if we could go in and we could actually add like edge detection and other things associated with machine vision by writing filters for them in GPU image and be able to add that functionality to our robotic systems. So that's kind of like a long term thing that we'd eventually like to be able to add to our system that we don't currently have and we wouldn't have been able to add if we kept the old code base. We should point out for those listening that GPU image is a framework that Brad created, but is pretty popular now for doing really fast image processing that's GPU accelerated, and it works on iOS and the Mac. And it's kind of like Core Image, only it's it does some things that Core Image can't do and is faster in certain areas and stuff. It's pretty cool. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely check it out. It's also open source, so if you're using Core Image and you're applying a filter, it's kind of in a black box. You're not able to actually see what the code does. So if you're somebody who's interested in going and learning graphics programming or anything having to do with image processing, it's a really awesome resource for people to be able to go in and actually look to see, you know, like how something works. And so it's just, it's a really awesome resource just for the code base in and of itself. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's a big advantage. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. Andrew. Do you want to start us off with picks? Oh, yeah, I've been kind of lazy about thinking about my picks for this episode. I guess I'll do a self-serving pick, but it's it's related to some of the stuff we talked about, and I think I've maybe picked it before. But that is my serial port library. It's called ORS Serial Port, and it's written in Objective-C. It's been around for a few years, but it works very well with Swift, too. And I have Swift examples for how to use it, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. It makes it really easy to to use a serial port from your Mac program. If you want to, like, if you've got an Arduino and you want to make a little Arduino project and then have a Mac app that controls it and you know how to write Swift or Objective-C, this is pretty easy to get up and running and with not a lot of code. And if you've ever looked at the underlying serial port APIs on OS X, they're all pure C and they're not exactly friendly to a beginner. So check that out. And I think that's my only pick today. All right, Jane, what are your picks? All right, I've got a couple picks. One, it's October right about now, and that means it's apple season. And one of my favorite apples is the Honeycrisp, which originated in Minnesota. So you can get them pretty fresh here, so the stores are full of them. Just an amazing apple for eating. So if you like an apple and you're in an area where you can get them fresh, I definitely recommend getting Honeycrisp apples. Good stuff. Uh, second pick. I'm a subscriber of the NS Screencast by our ex-panelist, Ben Sherman. And I'm sad to admit that I haven't been checking in that much of what he's been doing, but I checked in a week or two ago and found one excellent episode they did on the ATS, the new security framework or protections for iOS. So he gives you, if you run into that and if you're going to iOS 9, most of us just turned it off because we didn't know how to fix it, the server stuff ourselves. But for diagnosing and helping your server team figure out what's happening, they did a great episode on the ATS. So if you're a subscriber and not checking in as often as you are, you might want to check out his episode on ATS. 
And those are my picks. All right. I'm going to pick a couple of books. I've been reading to my kids at night when I'm home and have time, which is usually three or four nights a week. And the books that I've been reading have been kind of fun. So the first book, uh, I'm just going to... Actually, I'm going to pick three books, and I picked two of these on the other shows, so yeah, whatever. Anyway, so the first book, the first two are going to be books that I've been reading to my kids. The first one is one that my father-in-law gave to my daughter for Christmas, and it's a historical fiction, and they travel back in time and you know experience historic events, and it's just been really fun and very educational for my kids. The one that we read was Rush Revere and The Brave Pilgrims. And I know it'll probably turn some people off that it was written by Rush Limbaugh, but uh, this isn't a politicized book. It really is just uh, here's what happened in history and some background and context so the kids understand what's going on on the boat and as they settle the colony. It was really good, a really great read. The other book that I've been reading to my kids is The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book chronologically in the Narnia series. It's right at their level, uh, great books, uh, a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed those books myself. So I'm uh, going to pick those. The last book that I'm going to pick is more of a financial advice book. It's a very long book, has a lot of great information in there, and it's financial advice from, of all people, Tony Robbins. It's called Money, Master the Game. Uh, most of it's about investing and how to invest to ensure future lifestyle and income. And he's really done his homework, and there are a lot of things in there that I had never really thought about. I don't know if I agree with everything in the book, but he kind of presents a lot of different options for you so that you can make the decision that works best for where you're at investing as far as how much risk you can take and where you want to wind up. So I have to recommend that book because it was really great. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. Janie, do you have some picks for us? Yes. Since I am interested in graphics programming, I wanted to mention a couple of different resources. Um, we already kind of briefly talked about GPU image. Um, I highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in graphics programming because I personally have not taken any math since I was like 18, and that was longer ago than I'd like to admit. And so it's really cool to be able to go in and look at the filter showcase and find a filter that does something that's really interesting and then be able to go back and look at the code and be able to kind of pick through it and try to figure out what the math was behind it or what all of the different aspects of the shading language actually mean. It's a really good learning resource if you're interested in figuring out how to write graphics shaders. And also, along with if you want to learn how to write graphics shaders, there is a wonderful tutorial from a Ray Wenderlich site that is awesome for entry-level graphics processing. Most of the resources that I tend to find when I'm trying to figure out graphics programming are either really math intensive with all of the weird, creepy like Greek symbols that I don't remember because it's been a really long time, or they kind of assume that you already know the math and you know a lot of the other stuff, and so it's incredibly difficult to go through and actually try to learn programming. So that particular tutorial I thought was really awesome because it assumes that you don't actually know all of these different things, and it explains Perlin noise, it explains where a lot of the, the equations came from and it explains what they're actually doing. So that's my recommendation for anybody who's starting off with graphics programming is to do that tutorial and then after that tutorial go look at GPU image. And then uh, my last pick that I wanted to talk about was an incredibly awesome blog post that I will occasionally read when I feel very bad and it's called Programming Sucks. 
And it just kind of talks about how all of programming is basically nothing but despair because everything in the world is like 10 minutes away from completely falling apart. And that the only reason that the internet works is because you have hundreds of people at Google who are running around like hamsters in cages 24-7, frantically patching things and keeping everything from falling down around our ears. So I mentioned when I started off that I had this job that I didn't particularly fit in very well in. And I kept thinking, man, everybody's code sucks. You know, one day I'll go and I'll work for you know, some company where all of the code will be awesome and perfect and wonderful. And I realized we all feel that way. We all, we all think everybody else's code is horrible and that everything is falling down around our ears and that the apocalypse is nigh. But it's okay because we're all in it together. And it's just it's, it's reassuring to read that and figure out that I'm not the only one that feels this way. Boy, I've had those days, too. So. <laughs> Someday yeah, I'll work too. with a real team that writes good code. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. I don't know. I don't know why I'd be on that team. They let me on the team, but I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, if people want to uh, get more information about you or follow you somewhere and aren't up for a road trip to wherever you live, where do they go? Everything that I have is associated with Red Queen Coder. So my Twitter handle is Red Queen Coder. My uh, blog is um, hosted at redqueencoder.com. If you just go online and you Google Red Queen Coder, there's plenty of places where I go and I, I spout off all of my, my various ramblings and people can consume them if they so choose. How'd you come up with the handle? I used to play chess a lot when I was a kid, and I was always really interested in Lewis Carroll. So there was a, a okay. character in Alice Through the Looking Glass who was the Red Queen. It was the Red Queen, like, from the chess set. And Alice saw, like, her running through the woods as fast as she possibly could. She said to her, you know, where, where are you trying to get to by running so fast? And she said, you know, darling, I'm not trying to get anywhere. I'm just trying to stay in one place. If I wanted to get anywhere, I'd have to run twice as fast. So when I started learning programming and I got into iOS programming, I think, like, a couple of months after I started, my teacher came in and said to everybody, all right, everything that you know is now obsolete because iOS 6 came out and everything has changed. And I realized that I would have to keep relearning things over and over and over again every single year. And I had a little bit of despair because I really wanted to like learn graphics programming and audio programming. And I was afraid that I was going to wind up spending like a year just learning all of the changes that came from the previous iOS and then I'd have to throw it all out to learn the next iOS. So I felt very much like that where I felt like I had to learn as fast as I could just to stay in one place. And I had this despair that I'd never be able to learn any of the cool stuff that I really wanted to learn. That's a great explanation. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I, this was great. And we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. We'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join a conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash form. 